Hello, and welcome to Court Games, a Legend of the Five Rings podcast funded by the Legend of the Five Rings Discord Patreon community. This podcast will focus on the role-playing game stories and lore for Legend of the Five Rings. I'm Korva. I'm Kiki DeKaori. And today we are continuing Mountains for our Interesting Environments series. But we do have a little news. We do. Asmodee has announced some comic book series from their properties from Source Point Press. And amongst the Pandemic and Mysterium, there are going to be Legend of the Five Rings comics. It's going to be launched in 2022, which apparently is not the far distant future, but is just a few months away. It's going to be distributed by Diamond Comics, Simon Schuster, and certain game distributors. So we don't know anything about them other than they exist, or they will exist. So, like, who's doing them and what the plot is or anything like that. I'm desperately hoping they're going to be good, because, honestly, more L5R content out there is good. So we're hoping. Fingers all crossed. And also, Edge Studio has released Fields of Victory to PDF on DriveThruRPG. Raw of the Lioness has not yet been released, and we don't, unfortunately, as with all things, we do not have any information about whether or not it will be. But Fields of Victory is out on PDF on DriveThruRPG. Yay, we've been waiting a long time. We have. But <laughs> but we're, we're going to go on today and continue what we were talking about for mountains. Uh, if you recall, last week we talked a little bit about the kinds of mountain ranges you might find in Rokugan and a little bit about mountain life. And so we're kind of continuing that today by talking about one of the major reasons why people will be mucking around up in the mountains, which is because of mining, um, which is a lucrative way to fund your mountain villages and castles. Now, in Japan, there are really not very many mines. The mines that there are are coal, iron, and copper for the most part. But none of these resources were really fully developed until the Tokugawa period. There were two gold and silver mines. Those metals tend to come together with the metals brought to the surface by all the hot springs that underlie the area. So if you've got an area with a lot of hot springs, that's a good area for looking for gold and silver. Gold mining in traditional Japan occurred in placer deposits. That's the kind of cobbly, gravelly river deposits that happen when you get the the mountains eroded down and then it gets deposited in the mountain valleys and passes. And then the fast-running waters off the mountains basically erode the ores out of the mountains and sort them so miners can dig them or pan them out of out of the gravel surface beds or so it's not quite like what we think about digging a hole in the ground in a placer deposit you really don't want to be uh trying to dig down it's like trying to dig through gravel yeah 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 it 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 doesn't hold a deep deep mine in the Tokugawa period there was more traditional mining uh, as these place deposits started to get tapped out. But the ore was very difficult to reach because the beds were often below the groundwater level. That's why you get the hot springs. So. Yeah, sometimes those mines... I, I, I don't know whether... I, I'll, I'll admit, this is not something I know whether it's historical, but I do know it comes up in samurai dramas, and that's good enough because that's really what we're... Mm-hmm. 
emulating is that sometimes these mines were essentially used as prisons. So if you were, uh, especially a the Hamin, if they were the commoners, were sentenced to a crime in for things like oh, you will go for ten years hard labour. The hard labour in particular would be mining, or, or could be. That seemed to be a thing that occurred. And obviously there was also corruption and all sorts of stuff. So there are plots in theory that your adventurers could encounter to do with that. Right. So I've done so I've been doing some more research on, on mining and, and yes, usually when you are someone who was sentenced to a mine, it was a life sentence. So so you've done something, you've earned yourself properly or not, a life sentence and as an alternative to execution, you could be sentenced to work in the mines as a prison. Yeah, I didn't have a lot. I suspect that's one of those things. It all depends on how criminal do you need to be to send to to the mines? Well, depends how much we think we can dig out. <laughs> but this is a Tokugawa. So this is relatively late in um, Japanese history that you actually would have that. In Japan, overall... There wasn't a widespread deforestation like in China because it just was so mountainous that it was hard to hard to deforest. And so uh, that would mean that they didn't really drive towards coal, coal mining, which is the most frequent kind of mining around the world, uh, as quickly or as intently as China required it. So China had a lot more developed mining than Japan did in a lot more areas. When it comes to coal, certainly a word for coal in Japanese is literally the kanji are rock and charcoal. So they used charcoal for like their burning, for their forges, for fires, you know, keeping places warm, industrial uses, because, because they didn't deforest, they had loads of wood to use for charcoal, and so that's how the economy was kind of worked around. And to the extent that they didn't really feel the need to have a whole separate word just for coal, because they'd use charcoal instead. Right. Mining for something like jade and rokugan, or mining in topography that's more like rokugans, that isn't as intensely mountainous, would tend to be more dispersed and would probably use mining techniques a bit more like those developed in ancient China, just because the state isn't as organized in Rokugan as it is during Tokugawa period, and the mining is not as focused on like these one these two spots that have the gold. So it's going to be a little differently. So I thought we'd take some time to talk about Chinese mining as well as Japanese and see the differences and then you can see what you want to use yeah i mean the the chinese had excellent metallurgy mineral identification um they were crafting in nephrite jade in copper and bronze by you know the 2000s bce there are books that were written on the subject so mountains and seas by shanghai jing or chat by dream creek by on how to identify minerals. I mean, this is using stuff that would become the methods that are used you know, in the modern day 
in the West for how I, what, what substance do I have in front of me? And with the Japanese court in the Heian period in the 600s CE, they would have had access to that knowledge. The fact that they didn't seem to use it that much is probably more to the fact that it wasn't that useful given their particular circumstances, as opposed to they just couldn't or they weren't smart enough or anything like that, which is a, a thing sometimes people, that's a conclusion people come to. It's like they didn't do this thing, therefore they didn't know how or they were too stupid or something like that, whereas very often it's, it wasn't worth developing in the specific circumstances they were in. And that's completely different. So in Rokugan, even if Rokugan is based more on Japan than on China, if the circumstances mean that they want to mine more, they need to mine more and can mine more because the geography is different and their needs are different, then there's nothing stopping them from learning that information and using it. Mm-hmm. So perfect example of what you're saying, uh, the Chinese were able to use and tap uh, natural gas and petroleum, uh, had even had a good understanding of how subsurface geology works by the 1740s, well in advance of the West. But because China was closed off and, from the West and didn't need the large scale manufacturing they didn't do the industrial revolution there. Not that they didn't have the resources or they couldn't have. It's just they closed off and they, they didn't want to. <laughs> um, they also didn't have a distinct uh, Bronze Age or Iron Age division because basically bronze was used for many, many purposes after um, iron smelting techniques had been evolved and just was used right along parallel to it. And stone was used for making grave goods and other purpose long after bronze had evolved. So you, they had all the ingredients. They had copper and tin for bronze. Together, they didn't need to trade for them. And they just used all three altogether. So there is no like Bronze Age, Iron Age in, in China. It, it was distinct. You kind of get that in Europe because in most European company uh, countries, and even getting into the Middle East, you generally either had copper or you had tin. But there's iron ore all over the place. So when they were trying to use bronze, they would need to trade either for the copper or for the tin. When technology got to the point of being able to make iron, well, you just shift to that because there's iron ore all over the place. But if you have them both and you don't need to trade for them, why not keep making bronze? Bronze is actually quite useful for certain things. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing that we assume these historical periods come in this order and this way, and it doesn't happen necessarily that way. Things might be different, though, when it comes to Rokugan, because Crablands has a distinct need for specifically jade, which is not quite the same as the, the need for the kind of capitalistic need for resources, and we need to you know, grow and, and all that kind of stuff which is why mining tended to occur in scattered mining villages uh, as opposed to like these, these, you know, a mine would be a big thing like uh, a, a town would form around. You know, it would be some farmers would turn up. Well, yeah, a village or an area would find a m desired metal 
in their area, usually in its in its raw form, in a, in a very easily accessible form. And then all the villagers, all the farmers in the area would stop farming for a while, basically, and all go mine that local vein out, that local area out themselves um, as much as they can. And then when it was no longer profitable and they gotten all the money from selling it out, they all went back to farming. So this is very different from uh, mining in the West where you have professional miners who would go from mine to mine or, um, you know, have a, have a closely supervised mining system where people would scout for, for mining and then send all the prisoners or whoever you're doing mining to do it. You won't, you, you won't have generations of miners. You won't have someone, my grandfather was a miner and I'm a miner and all that kind of, yeah, that's very unlikely. The the uh, scientific understanding of the metallurgy and and the um, you know mineral identification was in the scholarly class. So in China, you had very intense scholarly class who studied science of all different kinds, and, and this was considered esoteric science science knowledge, and it wasn't really uh, explored in a way that would be exploited to do uh, more mining, basically. They would know, the scholars would know this stuff, but the scholars wouldn't be caring about mining. You know, why would you, why would you do that? So, so they wouldn't use it that way. That's a worker thing. If they find it, that's fine. But I'm interested in, in like, this scientific principle and can I use it to make an elixir of ele- immortality or something like that? So <laughs> that that's, it just was, the scientific knowledge was explored in abstract in the scholarly elite, but it wasn't used to increase the, the mining. But uh, the mining was really disorganized uh, and kind of a, a village activity like farming is rather than something controlled by in Rokugan, the daimyo. But as you said, this might be a little different in Crablands because jade is so important and their war machine relies on it that maybe they they do something slightly different there. I can see the Caillou particularly getting behind both the esoteric scientific interest but also the dirt under the fingernails, get this stuff out the ground. I can see them kind of being rather more interested in that than pretty much anybody else in terms of actual samurai. So there is another aspect that is different when it comes to Rokugan, or at least some Rokugani lore, is that certainly in older versions of the story, in old Taivar, you know, first to fourth edition, some clans enslaved Mujina or Zokujin for mining. Now, we mentioned before, in late Tokugawa, prisons with life sentences could be used for gold mining, but that was fairly rare. And slavery is frowned on quite a lot. And certainly, I'm, I'm pretty sure that it's mentioned specifically that slavery is not a thing in Rock Island, certainly not meant to be. So I don't know whether it's been mentioned in 5th edition law or FFG law that they're, they're doing this you kind of wonder whether or not the Shigenja would really be okay with shackling spiritual creatures. Has it been mentioned? 
I have not found a mention of this. Of course, Rid of the Wilds is coming. Things things might change. That's probably got some mountain stuff in it. But in general, the Magina or the Zokujin are, are still spiritual creatures, especially the Magina. And I don't think that um, Rokugani Sh- Shiginja would be happy with with that as as a practice. I mean, there may there may be ways in which they end up doing mining, and that that is somehow you know. So they do do mining and they trade, or I quite yeah. I just immediately had this idea because the Magina tend to be trickster spirits. There's a lot about them being tricksters. I actually just literally thought, so wouldn't it be funny? No, they're not. But what if what if the Magina? What if the Magina tried a big prank? Someone outsmarted them, and they they lost a bet, and now they have to do a certain amount of mining. I thought that might be funny, but yeah, the Zokujin, no, they they don't want to be doing that at all. Yeah, right. The Zokujin are earth tide creatures, however, and uh, as you said, they could be something that uh, very quiet little trade agreements are made with with them or there's a debt that we don't know about or there's some other thing that isn't just yeah we enslave these people because that's gross that's not that said a mining town is easier to control than a village everybody has to go down in the mine every day everybody comes out Uh, an open village a farming village has people ranging all across a very wide area of fields you it's far too many fields for even a group of soldiers to, it's far too wide a space for a group of soldiers to keep and force villagers to stay in a village a farming village it just it doesn't work right you can't stop them however a mining village is usually in a compact area people live close together it's often really rough terrain and it's closed off and uh you kind of send everybody in the village into the mine every day it's a you can do a daily count it's it's a very oppressive um potential environment it's easier to control and very hard to keep people from very easy to keep people from running away in an environment not saying that that's how it's normally done but it can be but an unscrupulous or greedy samurai can force people to do it especially with you know armed armed people so it probably happens um, it would just be against societal expectation, which means that it would be uh, a place where players would see that and be shocked, even though they are, you know, they might be samurai bossing Hyman and technically legally have the uh, right to do so. This would be against societal expectation. Yeah, you know, we, we just because. Unlike us, Rokugan doesn't have a law for everything, or if it does, it's got 17 different laws for covering the same things with 17 different interpretations. It's not a strict codified law. So it's makes uh, basically it's a great place for your players to go raise raise a ruckus and um, free some free some poor villagers who are being impressed by uh, oppressed by a dastardly samurai lord. Yeah, so that's all the, the practical aspects of mining as it, attain, as, as it pertains to mountains. So I would like to look at some of the more supernatural aspects of mountains because 
both Chinese and Japanese stories around mountains very often use them as a proximity to heaven. So the higher you go up, the closer you are to Tengoku. So the tops of mountains are often very sacred. In Legend of the Five Rings, we don't have stories about people directly accessing Tengoku from mountains, but they do have a spiritual nature. And they're generally areas of spiritual clarity and purity, which is no doubt one of the reasons why there are a lot of temples up the tops of mountains. Uh, specifically the High House of Light, but that won't be the only one. There will be others as well, yeah. Absolutely. Um, in the mountains, you will have supernatural encounters, potentially, uh, just like you do in the deep forest. There are kind of different kinds of supernatural encounters. Um, one of the supernatural encounters that you might run into in the mountains is meeting a Tengu, or in old 5R, this was sometimes called a Kenku, uh, these are martial artists and smiths, uh, creators. Um, they are usually depicted as in L5R as a crow-headed person, <laughs> bird person. However, in traditional Japanese lore, they are depicted as little beings with long hooked noses. So if you're giving a clue, or both. So if you're giving a, a hint that this old woman is actually secretly a Tengu, you just give her a big nose. Uh, that's, that's, that's a sign that she is maybe a Tengu. Tengu served often in stories as sensei uh, in L5R. They are linked to the Crane clan in this fashion. Uh, they served as sensei for Kakita and for K his son Kakita Yasurugi and a variety of others in L5R's timeline. Um, in Japan, they tend to get into spiritual arguments with each other and then use humans as their um, things that they're making bets about on how they will react. So that's very, very traditional. They are very interested in spiritual things and Buddhism and uh, that is the stories for Tengu. Yeah, they're often depicted as wearing priestly garb, either Shinto or Buddhist. Um, sometimes they're dressed as Yamabushi, which were a particular sect. And they, and they show up in, in lots of things. They're one of the more famous people in the Genpei Wars, uh, Minamoto no Yoshitsune. So Minamoto no Yoshitsune was reputedly trained by the Tengu, and that's why he was such a great warrior. So they show up a lot. Uh, another of the supernatural encounters you could find would be trolls. They were one of the five elder races in Old 5R, great builders and crafters of magic. Their civilization kind of collapsed a bit, so they became fallen, somewhat decadent, and some of them ended up aligned with Fuleng, but... Uh, they are sometimes mistaken for ogres, and they're kind of ugly and ogre-like and live in isolated areas. They don't necessarily, it's not, I don't know if there's a free trolls kind of thing, like there are free ogres. So in old 5R, they are aligned with Fuleng uh, in some sense, because they became fallen and decadent from this time. They are uh, generally associated with the element of fire. Uh, in new 5R, they are not. We don't have, we have them, uh, 
But we don't have any links between them and the Shadowlands or Taint or anything like that. They are ugly and they are very ogre-like in New 5R, but they are timid and they live in very isolated areas. And they are sometimes mistaken for ogres. So the way you would set up an encounter with a troll is that your party thinks it sees an ogre or an oni or something there and it's it's a troll and he's minding his own business and have to figure out that this is this is not an ogre uh for those overly trigger happy people i'm not entirely sure i know the quite the difference between ogres and trolls but they seem very similar they seem to occupy a similar niche one of one of them is blue and one of them is red (laughs) that would be very japanese um we do have pictures of them in the card game, and they are kind of greenish. They have very, very hard skin, so they're very difficult to fight. Another creature that is a supernatural encounter you would find in the mountains is the Kirin. And the Kirin does not associate with people, does not come to people, does not talk to people. But the Kirin you might see standing on that mountaintop far away. And and just catching a glimpse of a Kirin promises great fortune. They're benevolent just by looking at looking at them. It's it's good luck. Yeah, they're similar in a way to the you can imagine the, the three northern clans were originally Dragon Phoenix and Kirin. And the Kirin are kind of like the the Phoenix and the Dragon in that sense. They're mystical animals which are very important and and seeing one as a mortal probably means that you are destined for something and uh, such like but then the kirin clan went away and became unicorn clan because stuff happened but there are still some kirin around right and the kirin is would be if you, it looks like a cross between a horse and a dragon with a little lion tossed in because you know <laughs> And I believe some of them can be associated with different elements, so there can be all sorts of slightly different variations. But um, yeah, they're they're strange and mysterious. We also have some images that we like to use, maybe of of mountains that you can tie into your game and and just give your players uh, a sense of traveling through through this area, uh, a mountain wildflower meadow filled with many, many kinds of flowers that you can't find anywhere else in the empire because these high elevation meadows have flowers that can't be transported. So that would be a a lovely thing to see. A very common image is a waterfall cascade coming out of a rock wall high above into an otherwise still pool. Sometimes you'll see little shrines nearby and they are often used for meditation. So if you meditate in the waterfall, this is apparently helpful, especially because the water is very cold and will help focus your mind and practice your stamina and your willpower and uh, help you towards purity. It's a quite a common meditation image for your warriors. You can have a narrow ridge line trail of rock with icy glaciers to either side that your PCs have to navigate uh, to try and get to some high up place like the high house of light with uh, a storm coming soon. And if you're exposed right there, that's a, 
potentially lethal place to be. So get out of there fast, but very, very cold and beautiful. You might come across a filthy village where everything is stained blood red with the pounded iron ore that gets mined there. So the ground, the water and the feet of the people there all have that same red color everywhere. And it seems to, you can't clean it out no matter what you do because it's just part of living there. Uh, You could have a village that cannot be accessed except by the narrowest of rope bridges. And the villagers all have very strange accents and eccentric ways to the rest of the empire because they have just that isolated that they do their thing. And you can barely ever get there. And there may be a shrine that is covered in snow that is clinging precariously to a rocky peak. You may have a rickety-looking walkway that is literally just planks of wood somehow jammed into cracks in the cliff wall that you have to carefully, carefully walk your way up. There may be slightly more robust versions of that where there's actually like a covering and there's handrails and stuff, but it could be as simple as there's just a narrow little plank that you have to get along looking down at the uh, abyss below you to try and get to this particular shrine. That's a very common image. And sometimes if you're in a slightly more wooded forest, a wooded mountain or the the foothills, those stone steps, yeah, everything looks completely natural. Then you realize that there are stone steps just heading upwards and heading upwards and heading upwards. And at the top there is a an isolated temple or shrine or monastery that's almost, everything looks like it's almost overgrown and or growing out of the mountain itself. As we've been doing with our adventure series, I thought we'd finish up by giving you a number of cool adventure hooks that you could use to have reasons to drag your PCs into such an area and interact with some of these things. So here's one. A superstitious lord has been told by a fortune teller or prophet that it is imperative that he present an offering to the Kami of the North Wind on the first day of the new year. He sends the PCs to the shrine of the Kami of the North Wind, which is on the peak of a mountain, and the way is nearly impassable. The PCs could leave the offering someplace below the shrine, And no one would know any better because it's completely isolated. But if they do make it to the shrine and they leave it at the shrine, maybe the North Wind brings them a gift or a vision or something that could portend great, great things for them in their adventures to come. Rumors of strange disappearances lead the PCs to an isolated mountain village. The villagers are friendly and welcoming during the day. But something seems suspicious about them, like maybe they're just that little bit too happy, unlike all the other mountain villagers the PCs have encountered before. And so they begin their questioning, and eventually they are invited to stay the night. And when they wake in the middle of the night, all the adults have disappeared from the village, and only the children remain. And there's a red light shining on top of the cliffside outside of town. You get to think about what is in the light could be very, very creepy. (laughs) A new vein of precious metal has been found in a mountain stream that runs between two different clans. And villagers and ronins and others are flocking to the seam to find some of this metal. Uh, Maybe this could be either along the 
dragon unicorn border or along the phoenix dragon border in particular would be good places for this. The PCs have been sent with a accountant courtier to evaluate it for imperial tax purposes. But with such a bonanza and such an uncertain origin, who gets the medal? And what happens? Will nearby bandits uh, come? What will they do to make sure that they get some of this this metal too? So this is a, this is a uh, Wild West boomtown situation where people are trying to get rich quick, and uh, before the clans uh, fully organize what's going on out there, and your PCs are kind of the first out there to figure it out. Could be interesting. The son of a mountain lord has disappeared for nearly a month and then reappears. But they think you know nothing's happened except they spent an afternoon playing with a new friend. A shy and some might say ugly little boy that no one knows anything about. The local villagers say the ugly child was a Tengu and their precious winter stores have begun to disappear. So as the player characters investigate all these disappearances, the villagers find an ugly child that matches the description and begin to, to beat him, you know, wanting their stores back. He escapes, but after that, the village is set by disasters. There are storms, and there are avalanches, and people being ill, and all sorts. So the player characters are going to have to find out what's going on, find the Tengu, and get this justifiably upset Tengu to please stop, and also find out what exactly is causing these village stores to go missing. Or the PCs travel to an isolated mountain village renowned for its relaxing hot springs. But after arriving over the narrow rope bridge, they discover the village has been taken over by bandits who guard the bridge and are allowing travelers in, but not out. There are enough bandits to make fighting their way out pretty unfeasible, but they know the bandits are very likely to kill all the travelers before they leave. So what do they do to fix that situation <laughs> shamelessly stolen from lone wolf and cub but I'm, I'm sure there's a number of different ways that could pan out <laughs> anyway so hopefully that's some adventure ideas for you to send your pcs up into the mountains and do interesting mountain things uh we hope that you are enjoying this series i'm thinking about marshes next I'm looking forward to that kind of thing. <laughs> Before we leave, I wanted to give a call out to our patrons. Uh, I want to give a, a shout out to Sean Moshi Headfence, who is our patron. Thank you. And to Justin Kay, who has also joined us as our patron. Thank you very much. Uh, we will. All right. And, and to our other patrons, we'll give shout outs to the rest of our patrons in our future episodes. But uh, that's it for us this week. We wanted to give an additional shout out to Fortune and Strife, our affiliated actual play podcast, as well as our friends at D20 Radio. Our content is funded by the Community Discord Patreon, which supports our editing costs as well as our website. And on our website, we have longer term information. We've got our summaries of our podcasts. There are forums. RPG tools, and so much more. On our Patreon page, we have special bonus content like Adventure Seeds, early access to our AP podcasts, and more. Online, you can find us at our website, courtgamespod.com, 
On Twitter, we are twitter.com slash courtgamespod. And on Patreon, we are patreon.com slash courtgames. But, once again, that's it for us this week. This is Kakita Kaori. May the fortunes favor you. And I've been Corval. And until we meet again, keep your jade handy. Radio, your game is wrong.